0: You guys are, you're going to have to do something for me. You're going to have to put on your nerd hats. Did everybody bring their nerd hats this morning? All right, because I went full-on nerdy this week, okay? And and because of that, I'm going to throw you guys a bone here at the beginning of uh, my sermon. I'm going to tell you a story. So there was a man... And uh, he, was, he was a transient man, he was homeless, he passed from town to town in, in the Nova Scotia region of Canada, and, and uh, one day it was, it was quite a bit colder than they thought it was going to be, and so as he slept outside, he, he lost his life in the cold, and, and so the funeral director in that town was a man of great compassion, and he, he felt compassion on the man And so he wanted to do more for him than just bury him in in the pauper's grave that they had in in a cemetery several miles outside of the small town where they lived. And so he asked a man in the community who was very good at playing the bagpipes, he said, Hey, would you come? to this man's graveside he's not going to have any family there he's not going to have any friends it's just going to be me and and a minister will will recite a prayer would you come would you just would you play amazing grace on your bagpipes I think that'd be really meaningful and and the man said you know I I'd really I'd, I'd be honored to do that and and so on the day of the funeral the man takes off and and this grave is several miles outside of town and so he gets lost and he is, he's terribly lost. He ends up being over an hour late, and he's lost out in the country, and the, the minister's gone, the funeral director's gone. The only thing he sees is the burial crew with their construction equipment, and they're sitting on the equipment eating their lunch. And he says, well, I, you know, I told the funeral director that I'd do this. I'm a man of my word, so I'm going to play. So he gets out his bagpipes, and he begins to play and he's playing the song, and he notices that the gentlemen sitting on the tractor are getting really into this. They think it's beautiful, and and he notices he begins the second verse. They begin to have tears in their eyes, and so he said, man, this is is really making a difference. Maybe this is why I was supposed to play for these guys, because it's going to make a difference in their lives. And so he starts playing even harder. It's the best rendition of his life. By the end of it, he has tears running down his eyes, and those gentlemen have tears in their eyes. And as he finishes the song, he looks at them, and they share a brief look. And he wonders, well, should I go over and say something? Or should? And he just couldn't figure out what to say, so he just packed up his bagpipes, and he went home. And as the gentleman was walking away, one of the gentlemen on the tractor looks to the other, and he says, have you ever seen anything like that? And the guy looks at him, he says, I have been in the septic installation business for 25 years, and I've never seen anything like that. Hey, we're in a series called Room for Doubt, and I want to tell you this morning that sometimes it is appropriate to have a little bit of doubt. That bagpipe player should have doubted that he was in the right place, and so if you have doubts this morning, we want to welcome you. We want to say, that's okay. Let's address those doubts together, and let's come to a God-honoring answer to those doubts. All right? This series is called Room for Doubt. We're saying it's okay if you have some doubts, if you have some questions. It's okay if you have those doubts, it's not okay to ignore them. If you leave those challenges unaddressed, what they're going to do is they're going to fester in your mind. And before you know it, waves of doubt are going to start affecting your entire spiritual life, not just that one question you had. You won't know whether to believe this or whether not to believe that. You're not going to feel comfortable talking to somebody about that doubt. And more importantly, if you have doubts that go unaddressed, you're not going to feel comfortable talking to anybody about the faith that you do have. So we're saying this week, we're saying this month, that it's okay to have doubts It's not okay to ignore them. So over the next six weeks, we're going to be asking some tough questions. We're going to be asking some tough questions that maybe you face, or just as important, maybe somebody that you care about faces those doubts. And we're going to start our series with this question. Can I trust the Bible? Can I trust the Bible? The reason we're going to start our series with this question is because we're going to use the Bible, if we come out in the affirmative this week, all right, if, if we say yes, we can trust the Bible. If we leave this week with the affirmative, we're going to use the Bible to help answer the rest of the questions that we'll have over the next five weeks. So we've got to start with, can I trust the Bible? And, and to be intellectually honest this morning, something, there's something that I can't do. I can't open up my Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, right? Which is a good Bible verse. It says, that, it says that all Scripture is profitable or is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I can't say, see, the Bible says trust the Bible. That'd be easy, But to be intellectually honest, I can't do that. So we're going to look at some Bible this week, but I'm not going to approach it from that direction. We're not going to have a primary text where we launch from. We're going to answer that question um, in the form of apologetics. So we're going to defend our faith. And like I said, I'm going to be full-on nerdy this week, and I'm not apologizing for it. I'm just warning you. Okay, so can I trust the Bible? We're going to answer four common objections that people have to the Bible and thus to people of faith. And the first one is this. The first challenge is this. The New Testament was written too late to be reliable history. Maybe you've heard this before. People are going to say, didn't you know that the New Testament wasn't even written until a century or two after these events took place? During that period, during that century or two between the events and the writing, there were all kinds of legends and myths that crept in. All kinds of misinformation. So you really can't take the Bible very seriously because it was written too far after the events actually happened. And you know, if that were true... If the gospel records of Jesus had been written a hundred or two years after Jesus walked to earth, that would bother me. But it isn't true. This claim has been refuted over and over again, but that doesn't stop people from bringing it up. Let me, let me share some facts with you. The events recorded in the Bible are primarily based on direct eyewitness testimony. Everybody say eyewitness yeah, what's the best kind of testimony? Yeah. If you are a detective and you are looking for somebody to help you solve a crime, who do you want to find? The Bible, the events recorded in the Bible are based primarily on direct eyewitness testimony. For example, the Apostle John. He wrote the Gospel of John uh, and then the three epistles to John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then the book of Revelation. He makes it very clear that they were writing based on eyewitness testimony. Here's how he starts 1st John in chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. That's what we proclaim. They are eyewitnesses to the events that they are recording. Other parts of the New Testament are, rec- are compiled by writers who got their information from direct eyewitnesses. Um, people like Luke. He was a physician. He wrote the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. Luke wasn't there for those things, but he interviewed people who were There. Luke chapter 1 makes this point very clear. Here's what he says. He says, Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used eyewitness reports to circula- reports circulating among us from the very early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an account so that you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. I love that. He was careful so we can be certain, okay? That's Luke chapter one. He was careful as he did his history, as he did his research. He was careful so that we can be certain. These writers were making the claim that they were eyewitnesses to the actual events or at a minimum that they'd obtained information from the eyewitnesses. And that's important That gives them credibility historically, and it gives them credibility as they were speaking. By the way, there there were accounts, that 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 original question we asked, they weren't written down until later. That's not true. The accounts were written down very early. Soon after the events, they were chronicled and, and easily within the lifespan of the people who walked with Jesus. So the accounts were written down early. In fact, it's now widespread, or it's widely accepted, even among skeptical historians and skeptical theologians that the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were all written within the first century. Within the first century. That's when the Gospels were written. And that's even among skeptical theologians. They all believe it was written within the first century. I'm going to take it a step further. New Testament scholar Craig Blumberg explains that the book of Acts, which was written by Luke, it ends apparently unfinished. Paul is a central figure in the book, and he's under house arrest in Rome. Uh, And then that's where the book abruptly halts. We don't know what happens next. What happens to Paul? Well, we don't find out. It's probably because the book was written before Paul was put to death. That means that the book of Acts cannot be dated any later than A.D. 62. All of a sudden, we're getting a little bit closer to that year 33. That means, Blumberg continues, that, uh, that Acts can't be dated any later than A.D. 62. And once we've established that, we can move backward from there. Since the book of Acts was part two on the Gospel of Luke, well, guess what was written before 62? The Gospel of Luke. All of a sudden, we're getting even closer to 33, right? These things were written very, very close. Mark, even earlier, by the way. uh, I I date the Gospel of Mark to the mid-50s. All of a sudden, we're getting closer to 33. So if Jesus was put to death in, in 33, we're talking about a maximum gap, even among people who are skeptical, of 30 years between the events and the historical writing in, in historical terms in historical terms that's just a news flash okay that is that fast the gospels were written so quickly now i i want I want to take just a, a moment here and, and tell you that 30 years in Bible time is, is not very much. In historical time, it's not very much. I want to tell you about a few things. We'll go back uh, a couple of years. Um, well, you know what? We'll even go back a little bit further than 30 years to 1977. A couple of important things happened in 1977. The first Star Wars film came out. Okay? Uh, Apple released the Apple II computer. Jimmy Carter was elected president, and Elvis Presley died. Clearly those events, um, some of them more than others, are remembered by some of us here today. Uh, How many of you remember any of those things? You remember some of those things? How many of you remember some of those things clearly enough that you could refute errors or false reportings? You think you could do that? I'm going to put you to the test this morning, okay? Okay. Let me give you a try here. Jimmy Carter was elected president as a Republican and defeated Richard Milhouse Nixon. Are there any mistakes there? What what did I say that was wrong? He was elected as a Democrat. Any other mistakes? Well, he's, but he took office in 77. And, you know, yeah. Caught me out of, I caught you on a technicality there. Yeah. Um, he was elected as a Democrat. He didn't... He didn't defeat Richard Milhouse Nixon, he defeated Gerald Ford for the presidency. See, that was a few years ago, but even this far, you very quickly determined those things, those aspects of my narrative that weren't true and corrected them. Historically speaking, 30, 40 years isn't that far. People would have the ability to correct any errors they saw. One more, let me, let me do another one for you. How about Elvis? Here's my headline. Elvis died while he was on vacation in Hawaii. Where did Elvis pass away at? Yeah, he passed away at his home in Graceland in Memphis. See, we know about these events. We know about these events. If somebody today tried to rewrite history and tried to rewrite those events, it'd be quickly detected and refuted. But this is important. We have no record of any contemporaries of the New Testament writers who who disputed the facts that were written in the New Testament that we have. We have no records of anyone disputing what we write or what was written in the New Testament. New Testament books were written very close to the events that they describe, and we can have confidence about the records that were recorded there. So I want you to lay that first doubt to rest. The Bible was written too late to be historically accurate? I don't think so. It was written well within the lifetimes of the eyewitnesses, and we can be confident that what's recorded is what happened. Here's the second challenge I want to talk to you about this morning. The Bible's full of myths and stories of miracles that that can no longer be believed by thinking people. Hey, you've probably heard some variation of this challenge in the past, but I want to I want to talk to you about that a little bit, okay? Because, and I don't if these are doubts that you have, I don't want to I don't want to diminish your doubt? Okay, I just want to answer based on the knowledge that that I have and the convictions that I have of the Bible. Somebody might say the, uh, the Bible is full of claims about ancient prophecies, about virgin births, about divine miracles, about people walking on water and rising from the dead. We now live in an age of science and we can't accept these superstitions anymore. But you might ask, well, have you investigated the evidence, where it goes? Usually you're going to get, well, no, I haven't done that. I just believe that. I just, I just believe that, but I haven't investigated. You see what they're doing, though? They've predetermined what they want to believe, often without any investigation at all. i want to put it this way. I remember being a child, and I was sitting at the dinner table one night, and um, we, had something, we had something new for dinner that night, something I'd never had in my life before, Brussels sprouts. I'd never had anything that color on my plate before. I'd never had anything that shape on my plate before. I'd never had anything that smell on my plate before. And I wasn't too interested in it. My mom said, you know, I ate the rest of my meal just fine. And my mom said, eat your Brussels sprouts. You know what I told her? I don't like them. What do you mean you don't like them? You never tried them. I don't like them. Try them. Eat your Brussels sprouts. You might like them. I want to share some wisdom that my dad shared with me that night. He shared it with me that night and many other times throughout my life. And I think this is some appropriate wisdom for all of us this morning. Here's what he said to me. He said, try it. If you don't like it, throw it up later. I might paraphrase what he said just a little bit, but it's not a bad way to approach the Bible. Here's how I'm going to paraphrase my dad this morning. Don't dismiss the Bible before you investigate the Bible. Don't dismiss the Bible before you investigate the Bible. I realize there are a lot of amazing claims in the Bible. There are a lot of amazing stories. There are a lot of miracles in the Bible that skeptics are going to have a hard time swallowing. My friend John Trinkle says it this way. He says, if you can believe the first sentence in the Bible, you can believe the rest of the sentences in the Bible. You know what the first sentence in the Bible says? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you can believe that sentence, you shouldn't have any problem believing the rest of them. We need to challenge those who doubt to be more open-minded, to pay attention to the testimonies of the eyewitnesses who were actually there, to look at the evidence and to have the courage to follow the evidence wherever it leads. What evidence is there? Well, there's a lot of Bible prophecy there's a lot of Bible prophecy that's going to point us to the reliability of the Bible. Isaiah 53 predicts the suffering of Jesus. It predicts that, that Jesus would suffer for our sins, that he would be pierced for our iniquities. And that was written 700 years before it actually happened. Psalm 22 is written about 1,000 years before the time of Christ. And it describes the suffering in great Detail, read Psalm twenty two, you'll be shocked at how great the detail is that describes the suffering of Jesus as a thousand years before Jesus died. Micah five, chapter two, predicts again, hundreds of years before the before the time of Jesus' death, that he would be born in a in a town called Bethlehem, just as it happened several hundred years later. See, these words were written hundreds of years before the life of Jesus, and they're fulfilled perfectly in the life of Jesus. It leads us to one point. The Bible's trustworthy. The Bible's trustworthy. Now, uh, I've not encountered too many people that have had problems with Bible prophecy. They speak for themselves. I have talked to many people that have problems with miracles. So I want to talk a little bit about miracles this morning. And, and here's the, the common objection that I get. I just don't believe that those things happened. How could they be scientifically verifiable? I just don't see that happening. We live in an age of science; they're not scientifically verifiable. I want to address that question here in just a second. Um, but first, I want to I want to just make an interesting note, historically speaking. Okay, um, Jesus had a lot of enemies. Does anybody believe that in his life? Jesus had a lot of enemies, right? You don't get crucified without having an enemy or two. And and it's interesting to me that all of these stories circulated about Jesus performing these miracles. None of his enemies ever said, no, it didn't happen like that. Instead, they tried to catch him on a technicality. They'd say, yeah, Jesus, you healed a man with a withered hand, but you did it on Sabbath. And so as they try to accuse him for doing it wrong, they are at the same time acknowledging that it really happened. And that's so interesting to me that none of these events in Jesus' life are disputed because of what he did. They're disputed because of how they think he did it wrong in the Jewish religious system. So fascinating to me. So common objection. I want to go back to this common objection. We can't verify these things. We can't verify that these things are possible scientifically. You know, how I want to, you know how I love to answer that question? Of course you can't. Of course you can't. They're called miracles. If we could verify them scientifically, there wouldn't be miracles anymore. A miracle is something that exists outside of the natural order of Creation. If it's scientifically reproducible, it would no longer be a miracle. And I'm not interested in serving a God that people can reproduce in a laboratory. Of course you can't reproduce the miracles of God. It's not scientifically doable because it's an action that is outside of the natural order of creation. But I do want to correct something here. A lot of people will say that, well, I I I will believe a miracle when I can see that it is scientifically verifiable. And we hold the Bible to this standard of scientific scrutiny. We see once we can see that this is possible, then we'll believe it as truth. The fact of the matter is that is not the only burden of truth that exists in the world. So let me let me challenge you with something. Let me challenge you with something. Prove to me today that Abraham Lincoln lived. You you probably, that's doable, right? Raise your hand if you believe Abraham Lincoln lived. Okay? Prove it to me. Sure, you could go dig up some bones and get a DNA test, but you're not gonna do that. You're gonna point me to documents that he wrote. You're gonna point me to his memoirs. You're gonna point me to his childhood home. You are gonna point me to historical evidence. Scientific proof is not the only burden of proof that exists. Scientific proof is not the only one that matters. Historical proof carries a lot of weight, and the Bible can hang historically. Now, let, me, let me do another one with you in case you're, you're still kind of lost on this subject. And You're going, well, well, we don't live our lives based on historical proof. We live our lives based on scientific proof. You live your life based on historical proof. Let me give you two examples of this. Prove to me scientifically that the pilot of your plane is going to land it. You're not going to do that scientifically, because if you run an experiment, you're the experiment. Okay? You can prove to me historically that the pilot of the plane is going to land the plane. Okay? He's, he's flown uh, 1,208 flights, and he's never had an incident. He's always landed smoothly. You can prove it to me historically. Prove to me scientifically that the surgeon who's going to operate on you is going to do it effectively. You're not going to prove to me scientifically that he will complete the procedure. You're going to prove to me historically. Historically that he'll complete that procedure. He's operated 36 times and he's never lost a patient on the operating table. Uh, 29 of those people have had no complications. Four of them have had further complications. You're going to prove to me historically, you're going to prove to me historically that that surgeon is competent, that that pilot is competent, that the Bible is competent. We have to trust the Bible historically and guess what? The Bible's the most historically accurate, it's the most historically sound ancient document in the history of the world. If you're looking for something historically sound, The Bible is at the top of the pyramid. I'm going to bore you with a couple of facts over the next few minutes, okay? Uh, Many of the Bible stories have been confirmed by secular historians. Uh, The New Testament claims are later reinforced by early reporters such as Thallus, the Roman historians Tacitus and Suetonius, and the Jewish historians Josephus and others. According to Gary Habermas, author of The Historical Jesus, there are 39 early ancient sources outside of the Bible that provide over 100 facts about Jesus' life, teaching, and resurrection. If you're looking for something historical, the Bible is as historically sound as it gets. I don't have time to go into archaeology in great detail, but let me tell you. Um, Over and over again, archaeology has proved the historical accuracy of the Bible. In fact, there's one skeptical archaeologist who spent three decades of his life digging up and confirming things that were found in the Bible to his astonishment, detail after detail was reported true. A skeptic, he was a skeptic, by the way. He was a, a confirmed and pronounced atheist. His name was Sir William Ramsey. He was from Cambridge University. He concluded that Luke had correctly identified 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine islands without error. In the end, he declared Luke a first-rate historian, and not only that, the evidence impacted him personally. He shocked the academic world when Sir William Ramsey denied his professed atheism and put his faith in Jesus Christ. If you follow the evidence, it will lead you to Jesus. The Bible's not a book of myths. Rather, the Bible is filled with verifiable facts that you can examine, verifiable facts that you can confirm, and verifiable facts that you can stake your life upon. So, the Bible wasn't written too late to be historically accurate. The Bible isn't full of myths. The Bible was written early by eyewitnesses, and it's full of examinable facts. So, I get why you have those first two objections. But we'll look at some truth and see what happens there. There's a third, there's a third one. Um, this one's probably the most common. The Bible can't be trusted because it's full of contradictions. Bible can't be trusted because it's full of contradictions. I still can't trust your Bible because it's full of mistakes and people who contradict each other. I want to encourage you, if somebody asks you that, well, let's, let's open up the Bible and, and look at a couple of those contradictions. What? Sit down with somebody and say, let's look at a couple of those contradictions. Most of the time what you're going to find is uh, people are going to point you to an account where uh, one writer in the Gospels will say there was one angel. And another gospel writer is going to say there was two angels. This is in the uh, resurrection narrative of Jesus. One says there was one angel, one says there was two. Or Jesus rode into town on one donkey, and then another gospel writer says, well, there was two donkeys. He was riding on one, there was another trailing donkey. I want to I give you a helpful mathematical rule that, that may help you out in this. Wherever there are two, there is also one. Okay. Wherever there are two, there is also one. Let me show you what I mean. I just want to show you what I mean here, real quick, okay? Last Sunday, and it seems like about a month ago, but this was just last Sunday night, Leah and I were watching the Women's National Championship basketball game. That was a great game, wasn't it? Did anybody else watch that? Anybody watch the game? Any Notre Dame fans in here? I grew up in Northwest Indiana. Okay, I'm a Notre Dame fan. Uh, the Lady Irish one. So let me, let me give you a brief recap of the game. Okay, um, I don't know how to pronounce her names. So David, just have patience with me, okay? I'm gonna do my best. Erica Ogumbawale. She hits an impossible shot and wins the national championship for Notre Dame. Go Irish. Shortly after the shot, the ref starts looking at the replay, and she realizes that there is .1 second left on the clock, and there's more basketball to play. Now, is that how it happened? If you watch the game, is that how it happened? Yeah, that's how it happened. I'm going to tell you a different version of the same story. Last Sunday, Leah and I watched the women's national championship game. It was a great game. Erika Agumbawale hits an impossible shot, and she wins the national championship for Notre Dame. Shortly after the shot, the refs start looking at the replay, and they realize that there's .1 second left on the clock. There's more basketball to play. What's the difference between those two stories? I said ref, and the other one I said refs, plural. Which one's wrong? Either one. There were multiple refs blowing their whistles, and I can focus on the one ref, or I can focus on the plurality of refs. The fact that one eyewitness only mentions a single angel or a single donkey does not mean that there couldn't have been more than one. It just means that that writer was commenting that there were, in fact, angels present. There were, in fact, donkeys present. But then another writer decided he wanted to be more specific and say there was two. Instead of just the one. The other things that are called contradictions in the Bible are often easily explained as how people speak. When the writers present general descriptions, give brief summaries, round numbers, or use figures of speech, those things get called contradictions. I would contend that they're just talking like people talk. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, If I took a trip to Indianapolis and you asked me how far in a normal conversation, I'd say 200 miles. Okay? I'd I'd say 200 miles. Am I I lying to you? No. Is it really 98.5 miles each way for a total of 197 miles? Yes. But if I round it up to 200 miles, am I lying to you or am I just speaking practically? Okay? Uh, I, had this, I had a, a conversation um, with somebody I care deeply about recently, and they said, I just think the dates are wrong when we talk about the resurrection. Everybody says it was 2,000 years ago. It's been 2,000 years my whole life. And I said, well, we're rounding. And I said, we're rounding. I said, you know, in a sentence, 2,000 years sounds a little better than on this day, 1,985 years ago. Okay? I, I get it. I get it, but have a little bit of grace because we're just talking like people talk. We round. Okay? This is not a fish story. It's just rounding for the sake of normal conversation. Um, I do want to acknowledge, though, that, that not every detail is easy to harmonize. Now, this doesn't diminish the fact that all of the Gospels uh, are, are, say some things differently. But I want you to focus on something. Every gospel account, every book in the New Testament, and all of the books in the Old Testament point to the fact that Jesus resurrected from the dead. There is that central message going throughout all of the Bible books. And so these Bible books written on different continents over a span of thousands of years by 66 different authors, now by 40 different authors, uh, have this same continuity of message and there's no distraction, there's no takeaway, there's nothing that contradicts itself in that way. There's that same continuity of message that Jesus resurrected from the dead. So are some of these... Are some of these contradictions easy to harmonize? Not always. Not always. I acknowledge that, and we can have conversations on a one-on-one basis on some of those harder topics if you'd like to. okay? Uh, But I do point you to the fact that all of them affirm the resurrection of Jesus, and that's the central message. I also want to point out to you that if all of them were exactly the same, that would be a little bit skeptical right that would would cause an investigator to be skeptical so we're several lawyers in the room um, several uh, law enforcement officers in the room let's say you are interviewing witnesses about uh, an event that took place and you were a bystander on the street for a bank robbery and every story you interview four people and every story is exactly the same that sounds like it's a good thing right But nobody remembers things exactly the same. Everybody's going to be sitting at a different angle and have a different perspective. And so if everything's the same, alarm bells start going off. Somebody might say, if it was really true and you were really observing something in the heat of the moment, you might say, yeah, that guy had on a blue shirt. And the next guy, says, it sure wasn't blue. It was black. Are you blind? Okay. If everything is exactly the same, that is evidence that people conspired together to make their stories the same. So these differences, these slight differences that exist in the narratives of the New Testament aren't an answer to why the Bible shouldn't be believed. It's an answer to why the Bible should be believed because these people didn't conspire together to trick somebody. They told what they saw. And what they saw was from different perspectives. Let me tell you, uh, let me me describe it to you this way. Let's say that uh, John Trinkle and I last Sunday had tickets to the Women's National Championship game in Columbus. No comment on why we weren't at church on Easter. We just wanted to go to the game, okay? Um, So John has really good tickets because John knows people, okay? Uh, I I know you people, but none of you gave me tickets, okay? Um, So John is sitting courtside right behind the Notre Dame bench. He's got an awesome view. I'm sitting basically in Salem. Right? My seat is just south of the International Space Station. Okay? And, and so I'm way up there. And uh, so John has a different view of the game than I do, right? John is like two inches away from Erica Gumbawale as she hits the shot. I found out on TV okay, from my seat. John's going to have a little bit of a different perspective to report about what happened there, isn't he? I had a pole in front of me. Okay, so that's just we when we view things from different perspectives, we have a different view. We see things differently and the gospel writers saw things differently. And we could say a lot more about the alleged contradictions that exist in the Bible. Uh, and, And I want to acknowledge that, again, not all of them are easy to answer. But I remind you that all of them point, all of the Gospels point to the resurrection of Jesus. And over and over again, the Bible has been affirmed. And I think it shows ample evidence that it's reliably, that it's a reliable source. It's a reliable source of revelation from God. And it's one that warrants our attention and ultimately our confidence. Uh, Last one. This one... It's also a fairly common one. The Bible's been corrupted over time. It's an oft-repeated objection, and people will say this, well, the Bible has been translated so many different times in so many different languages that how could we possibly think that the Bible we have today is a Bible worth reading? And here's the the illustration people will use, right? Uh, How many of you played Telephone? The game Telephone as a kid, right? You start with, I'd like to have a sandwich on Thursday, and you end with, elephant tusks are made of kryptonite. Okay? I think things end up differently as the story gets circulated. And they say, well, that's what happens with the Bible. You started with something that was pretty close, and then over time, you end up with elephant tusks. All right? How could we possibly believe what we read in our Bible? That's not how our Bibles are translated. Right? The, the Bible that I preach from is a New Living Translation Bible. It was not translated based on what we find in the King James Bible. My New Living Translation Bible was not translated from the King James. It was translated from the earliest Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic manuscripts that we have. We don't go back to the previous version. We go back to the earliest sources that we have. Every good translation goes back to the earliest and the best documents. Now... I'll be honest with you, it's the case with every ancient writing. We don't have the original handwritten documents themselves because they disintegrated. They disintegrated a long time ago, but we have a staggering number of reliable copies. We have a staggering number. Daniel B. Wallace says that the average classical author uh, has a literary remains of about 20 copies. That is, the average um, famous literary author from classic period, they have about 20 copies and we consider that solid evidence. You want to guess how many copies of the, of the Greek manuscripts that we have? It's not 20, it's more. It's about 5,800 we're basing our evidence on the New Testament on 5,800 copies when 20 is considered historically accurate and reliable. Dr. Wallace goes on to explain we have a thousand times more manuscript data from the New Testament than we do the average historically accepted Greco Roman author. Not only that, those other sources are often no earlier than 500 years after the original document was written 20 copies from 500 years after the original document was written is considered historically reliable we have 5800 documents from as close as 30 years well we don't have them 30 years after but um, about 150 years after we have our first documents Similar evidence shows the integrity and the reliability of the Old Testament text, including uh, more recent discoveries of much earlier copies, such as texts from Isaiah found in the Dead Sea Scrolls and the caves in Qumran. I'm not going to go any nerdier. I, I could. I'm sorry. The bottom line is the modern Bible translations that we have are accurate and trustworthy, and they are accurate renditions of the original biblical texts. We can read them with great confidence that we are reading what the original authors had intended for us to read. I want to summarize what we've looked at this morning. The New Testament was written early and it presents reliable historical accounts of God's activities through Christ. The Bible is not full of myths, but it does tell about the amazing ways that God worked through Jesus, including fulfilled prophecies and miracles. The Bible's not full of contradictions, and most of the alleged discrepancies are pretty easily answered. The Bible's not been corrupted over time. Rather, the Bible we have today are highly accurate and reliable versions of what was originally written. So, can you trust the Bible? The evidence tells us overwhelmingly that yes, you can. Jesus trusted it. He explicitly endorsed the Old Testament and said this about his own teaching Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words never will. I thought you guys were going to start playing and make it really spiritual as I concluded. That would have been awesome. I like it when I get to sound more spiritual. Our church trusts the Bible. I'll just say this our church trusts the Bible. I trust the Bible and I think you can too. But you're not going to benefit from the Bible by osmosis. You can't put it on your nightstand or under your pillow and think that it's somehow magically going to influence your life. So I want to challenge you with this. This week, pick up your Bible and read it for yourself. I think the Gospel of John is about the best place to start reading the Bible anywhere there is. So pick up the Bible. And start reading in the Gospel of John. One chapter every day. And you'll finish the Gospel of John just a few weeks. Pick up your Bible and read it. And I'll leave you with some words from my dad again. Try it. If you don't like it, throw it up later. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, we thank you for the Bible that we have, and I pray that you, would, that you would give us all conviction to read your word this week, not just to read it, but to study it, to examine it, to think about what's written there, and to not do so blindly, but to discern things, to write down the questions that we have, and ask those questions, because God, there is room for doubt. God, I pray that the words that we read in our Bibles this week will change our lives for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.